You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Hey everyone, this is Krista, and I want to welcome you to the Foundations Bible class. Uh, This is the class where we try to help equip and train you to engage in meaningful conversations with your 8 to 15 people that God has strategically and supernaturally placed in your life to invite them into a deeper relationship with the Lord. And as you can see, I'm not here today. Um, I'm on a business trip. I'm at the annual meetings for the Evangelical Theological Society, which is basically a nerd convention for people who like theology. And so it's, it's all the people who write the commentaries and they do the Bible translations. They're the top level scholars in Christianity and they gather once a year in one city. And this year that city happens to be Providence, Rhode Island. And so Lord willing, that's where I will be. And uh, I'll be helping to run a booth for my employer as well as catching some interviews for the television show that I'm working on developing with my employer. So that's what I'm doing today. And uh, I want to still thank you for coming and the show will go on. And we are continuing our series this fall of Christian values in changing times. And I genuinely hope that this series is Uh, being thought-provoking for you, maybe challenging for you, maybe helping you to begin to make sense of some of the current events that you hear on the news from a Christian perspective. And we're continuing uh, that discussion today. The, The big theme that we've been talking about this fall is the image of God and how this very important classical doctrine of Christianity comes to bear on so many of these contemporary conversations we're having in our culture. And the image of God is this idea that all humans have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. And we are working on understanding how to cultivate a distinctly Christian culture, a transformational agent within our own American context. And we've been talking about various ways of how we need to understand our identity as Christians first. And we love being American. We love being American citizens, but we want to begin to pull these things apart a little bit and figure out what part of my worldview comes from me being a Christian and what part of it comes from being an American and how do I act as an agent for change within my culture. And right now we're considering the question, what does the Bible have to say about race? Now, last week we covered a lot of the biblical content, so we will not be restating all of that here today. So if you missed that uh, discussion, you can go on the class website and get caught up there and get all of that great biblical foundation. But from a big picture perspective, what we talked about last week is, again, this paradigm of creation, fall, redemption, glorification. And in the creation, all humans were created in the image of God. We all came from that first pair of Adam and Eve. But then we fell. We fell into sin. And that we saw several biblical examples of how what we call race tensions in our culture were, they're just as old as, as scripture, they're as old as, as humanity. It's just part of our um, situation as a fallen people 
that we engage in racial tensions and prejudices. That's just part of our fallen condition. But then Jesus came, and he came to redeem us and to restore us, and he's put the Holy Spirit in us on Pentecost so that people from all over the world, and this is what it means for Christianity to truly be a global religion, we all have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit on Pentecost in his coming is the great reversal of, of Babel. We talked about that last week. And now we're all unified and we're all speaking the same language of love as God's people. And that this should um, kind of in a way be a foreshadowing of heaven in the glorified state. And it also ought to point us back to our pre-fallen condition. It helps us, Holy Spirit helps us to overcome the effects of the fall. And we saw in the glorified state that people from all languages, tribes, and tongues will be with us in heaven, and we will be in that glorified state worshiping the triune God. It's a beautiful picture. And that is kind of a summary of what the biblical position is about race. It's a very beautiful picture. Um, Unfortunately, we haven't always done race relations very well as Christians, especially here in the West. And so we're going to talk about that today. But first, I just want to point our attention briefly to a current reality, okay? And our current reality is that I think, this is opinion, is that most of what we know about race relations, we know from the media, We know from watching the news, and that gets our emotions going. It gets us going really quickly because emotions make for great television, don't they? And uh, But it doesn't always make for great Christianity. It doesn't make for great unity, the promotion of unity that we talked about last week that we ought to be working for in the body of Christ. And so I wanted to take a few minutes. I want Bob to stop the video for a few minutes and just have a discussion among yourselves of when you think about race issues, like what are the difficult questions or problems that you see that our culture is facing today? Because we just kind of want to put our assumptions out on the table. We want to, we're just going to notice them. We're not going to make a bunch of judgments about them. We're just going to notice them. And so let's talk for a few minutes about some of the challenges that we're facing in our culture right now when it comes to race relations. And this isn't just a black-white issue. This might be race relations between other races as well. And so be kind to each other. Um, But let's just talk for a few minutes about what some of those challenges are currently in our culture. So as we kind of regroup here together, hopefully you had a great conversation and and, uh, just talking about some of those very difficult questions. And we do live in very difficult times, don't we? And this this is a tough, tough issue in our culture. So hopefully we can... Put, spread some light and some love and some joy today on this very hard conversation. Now, I know that going into this, there's going to be, and I said this last week, so I think it's worth repeating, there's going to be some people who are going to think after they watch this talk or as they watch this talk that I'm being too liberal. And others might think that I am not being 
progressive enough, that I'm not advocating for enough social justice. So I'm just going to ask for grace. I'm just going to try to focus on what I think the Bible teaches, which is what we laid out last week, and begin to suggest some ways that I think that this comes to bear on our current reality in our culture when it comes to race, okay? So if you're one of those people who think I'm being too liberal, or you're one of those people who think I'm not being progressive enough, uh, I'm just going to ask for grace, and I'm going to ask you to try to hold those judgments a little bit to just try to suspend them. You can notice them, but maybe not get too emotionally reactive. Try to stay with me in the conversation as we go along and, and see what the Lord shows you as we unfold this conversation. Okay, that's all I ask. Thank you. All right, let's review really quickly about Acts 19. We talked about Acts 19 some weeks ago. And remember, this is the situation with Demetrius. And he's um, a silversmith who lived in Ephesus in the first century. And the Apostle Paul and his missionary team come to Ephesus. They're bringing the gospel. People start getting saved. They're repenting of their sins. They're getting baptized with water. They're getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. And what happens? But Demetrius gets a little concerned, and he starts um, really speaking out against Paul and his companions because if everyone stops worshiping Artemis, which, who was the primary god, it's very known in the ancient world that the temple of Artemis was one of the great wonders of the ancient world in Ephesus at that time. And uh, here's Demetrius making these little household statues of Artemis. He's thinking, how am I going to make a living? What's going to happen to my family if the gospel, these Christians come in and culture starts changing? People stop worshiping Artemis and they start worshiping this Jewish God. What is that going to mean for my business? And a riot breaks out. Now, you remember the, the point that I was making with all of this is that when the gospel goes somewhere new or when the gospel is there in a culture, it ought to have a transforming effect. A little yeast makes the whole loaf rise, right? So... If we want to be true Christians, we ought to have some kind of impact and influence and transformative effect in our culture. We are that yeast in that loaf of bread. And if we're not having any sort of transforming effect, we need to stop and ask ourselves the question, why not? Why are we not having a transforming effect? Are we looking too much like the culture or is the culture too so accommodating to us? Or is, are we trying to just protect our privilege? You know, what is happening that, that God's people are not a prophetic voice into the problems and difficulties in our culture? Now, there's various ways that we can be a transforming agent into cultures. There's many n examples of negative transformation that happens. The, the old stereotype of white Western missionaries who would take the gospel to other cultures, what they unknowingly did a lot of times was with the gospel, they had this added baggage of bringing Western culture with them. And so part of our, our job as missionaries is, again, to separate the gospel from our culture. We need to have our glasses really closely inspected so that we understand the difference between Christianity and our culture, because we don't want to inadvertently bring the baggage of our culture with the gospel, because that can be very unnecessarily damaging to cultures. 
On the other hand, we talked a few weeks ago about the beautiful example of what's happening in Cambodia, of how the gospel is coming in, the image of God concept is coming into that, to areas in Cambodia and transforming that culture where people are no longer um, engaging in so much sex slavery and sex trafficking because the Christians are there and they've come to bring light and love into that space and uh, making a way for those people to have viable alternatives than selling their children into slavery. So the gospel can have both, uh, Christians can have a negative impact and transforming effect in uh, when they take the gospel somewhere if they're not aware of their culture. So imagine in that example, like if I have a a cup of water here and I put one drop of food coloring in there, it's going to pollute. It's going to transform that whole cup of water. The question is, is what is that drop that we're putting in there? Are we putting something that is truly the gospel or are we importing our culture into it? We want to be positive examples. And when we do that, a huge component of that and what we're going to talk about today is being aware of our own cultural baggage as Americans. That's a big step for us. Okay? So first I want to talk about a man named William Wilberforce. Now, how many of you have ever heard of William Wilberforce? He's a man who lived in kind of the mid-1700s through about 1830s-ish. And he was uh, living in England um, around the same time as America was going through the Revolutionary War. William Wilberforce was serving in Parliament in England. And he was a young man who came to faith in Christ. His whole life changed. And we're going to watch a little video about that in a moment. But I just want to introduce you to William Wilberforce. If you've ever seen the movie Amazing Grace, it's a short snippet or series of snippets about William Wilberforce and his work to help end the slave trade in England. So we're going to watch a little video right now. It's a very short video, just kind of summarizing William Wilberforce's life and his conversion to Christianity and the transforming effect that he had. So let's watch that now. By the late 1700s, British slavers were capturing as many as 50,000 Africans each year and taking them to the Americas. So how did this enslavement of Africans come to an end? In the United States, it would take a civil war. In the British Empire, it would take a movement that included a man named William Wilberforce. While slavers were seeking slaves in Africa in the late 1700s, William Wilberforce was living in luxury in his family's estates in London and Wimbledon. Then he spent a few years gambling and dining with friends on the finest foods at college in Cambridge. Years earlier, he'd been fascinated by a young preacher named George Whitfield, but now all he wanted was a seat in the British Parliament. In 1780, when he was only 21 years old, Wilberforce got his position in Parliament. During his early years of service, William, in his own words, did nothing to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. Then in 1785, while on a trip across Europe, the emptiness of William's plush life began to gnaw at his soul. Finally, in the spring of 1786, following months of dark depression, William Wilberforce trusted Jesus Christ alone to transform his troubled soul. As a new believer, he thought about abandoning his political position, 
But John Newton, the ex-slave trader who had penned the hymn Amazing Grace, urged Wilberforce to use his parliamentary position for the glory of God. A few months later, Wilberforce received a letter urging him to work to end British slave trafficking, and he began to turn his efforts toward this goal. Now, despite his personal charm, Wilberforce was a clumsy political strategist at times. He and his friend Thomas Clarkson introduced legislation to limit the slave trade in 1789, 1791, 1792, 93, 97, 98, 99, 1804, and 1805, only to be defeated every time. Opposition to Wilberforce became so fierce that one friend feared he would be barbecued by African merchants and eaten by Guinea captains. Finally, in 1807, the efforts of Wilberforce and Clarkson combined with the news of a slave uprising on an island known as Haiti to turn the tide. Parliament outlawed the slave trade in the British Empire. The circle around Wilberforce then turned their efforts toward abolishing slavery itself. Poor health forced Wilberforce to resign from Parliament, but Clarkson and others continued this campaign. In July of 1833, three days before William Wilberforce died, it became clear that they had the votes they needed to end slavery in the British Empire. The next month, the House of Lords passed the Slavery Abolition Act. Thirty years later, slaves were emancipated in the United States as well. Christians rightly celebrate the impact of faith on the abolition of African slavery, but it's important never to forget that slavery didn't go away in the 19th century. In fact, in the opening decades of the 21st century, at least 12 million human beings live in slavery. Each year, more than a half million men, women, and children are transported as slaves across international borders. 70% are female, half are minors. May God raise up a new generation of men and women like William Wilberforce to bring an end to slavery in this century as well. So again, that's William Wilberforce. Hopefully, if you've never heard of him before, maybe you'll go check out the movie Amazing Grace. And that again, that's just some snippets from his life. But I think that that video offers a good introduction to what he did. Now, again, what I think is interesting about Wilberforce is that it was really his conversion to Christianity which began to help him think about slavery differently. And this was intimately rooted and grounded in his theology that all humans are created in the image of God, which is the very focus of this teaching series that we've been exploring this fall. Interestingly, Wilberforce's uh, Christianity then also impacted his view of other great issues, an issue we talked about earlier in this series. He was actually the person who founded the first Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and that was something we covered earlier in this series. He and his wife advocated and introduced Sunday school into um, the Anglican church. Uh, He did many other kind of acts that he saw as being rooted and grounded in the image of God concept, and then applied them in various areas. So it wasn't just slavery. It's just the slavery is the thing that he's the most known for. I want to watch a second clip right now. It's from a gentleman named Eric Metaxas, who wrote a biography about William Wilberforce. He's written some other famous biographies of um, on uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, more recently on Martin Luther, But he has this nice little clip here where he talks about William Wilberforce within the larger context of Wilberforce's culture and how truly groundbreaking uh, his Christianity was. So let's watch that clip now. What astounded me about Wilberforce 
is that here's a man who, when he accepted the gospel, it changed everything. Everything. He saw the whole world through the eyes of God and in a culture that was profoundly broken. And if you think our culture is broken, if you read my book, Amazing Grace, and you read about what the culture of Great Britain was like in the 18th century, in the latter part of the 18th century, it's sick. It's really sick. Um, because in America today, even atheists and agnostics know we should help the poor, we should do good, we should do something. Most people kind of know that. They don't know why they know that, but somehow they seem to think that that's a good idea. Well, Wilberforce lived at a time where no one knew that. And when he accepted the gospel, that means people are made in the image of God. That means the African slave is made in the image of God. And it changes everything. I will no longer be able to countenance the evil uh, that's being done to them. I cannot. I must do something about it. I must use what God has given me to help the poor, uh, to feed the hungry, to help those in prison who are without help, uh, to stand against injustice. There was unfathomable injustice in that sick culture because that culture was Christian in name only, totally in name only. They said, oh, we're, we're a Christian nation. Well, that meant we're not a Muslim nation we're not an atheist nation, we're not a Hindu nation, we're not a Jewish nation, so we're a Christian nation. But, you know, they weren't Christians in any real sense. They were pagans uh, masquerading as Christians. Wilberforce wakes up to the gospel and it changes everything. And he gives himself over to God's purposes in his life and does things that you, you just, if I didn't know it from the research and from the, from the history, you'd say no one person could do as much as he did. But when the gospel comes in, a little leavening, a little leavening, salt and light, it changes everything. The Lord effectively changes the world through Wilberforce. I mean, changes the world. And if you've seen the movie, you've seen nothing. As good as that movie is, it, it, it doesn't even scratch the surface. And that's why I was so thrilled I could write the book, because I said, I get to write about all the other stuff. I mean, the slave trade, that's like the worst social evil. Okay. But what do you think? Like, you think that it was like a really great culture. They had like powdered wigs, harpsichords, and everything is great, but they have the slave trade. No, no. If you're abusing human beings on that level for profit, something's deeply sick and wrong and broken. The whole culture was broken. 25% of all the single women in London, 25% of all the single women in London during this period were prostitutes. Is that possible? Think about that. What kind of men are living in that culture? The average age was 16. This is a sick culture. How, how do we not know this? I didn't know this. How do we not know what a profoundly sick, demonic culture that was? And by the grace of Jesus Christ, the gospel comes in through the Methodists, through John Wesley and Charles Wesley and Whitfield, and comes in and touches Wilberforce, and boom, it spreads and everything changes. And you get something called the Victorian era, famous for morality, helping the poor, doing good work. I mean, the gospel is just, it's the dynamite. It's the secret power that God has given us for free for his purposes in our time. I think Eric Metaxas does a great job there of kind of summarizing and putting Wilberforce into the larger context of his culture. And I think, again, that there is some, some parallels between Wilberforce's culture at that time and our own. I think that there is a very real sense in which our own country is Christian in name only. 
and that we have many features of our culture that are deeply problematic and as he says deeply demonic um, you know it wasn't just all powdered wigs and harpsichords there again I want to restate Metaxas's point that if you are engaged in abuse of another human to the point of slavery then there is something systemically wrong with the culture you have engaged in such deep uh, sin in your conscious mind to be able to to be okay with that and I think that we looked at a few weeks ago the issue of pornography and child trafficking there is something something deeply wrong in our culture when we have the kinds of numbers that we looked at a few weeks ago related to porn use, even within the, the church. So we need to be thinking about how we can bring more light and more love within our broader culture and even within our churches, that even our churches might need some reforming, if you will. And now we're going to kind of fast forward in history a little bit up to the 1950s. And we're going to look at uh, the Reverend uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now, I had the amazing privilege of going to Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, home, uh, his birth home, when I was visiting Atlanta earlier this year. He lived in a, a very modest neighborhood. They've kind of preserved the whole neighborhood. It's sort of a street of, of houses there and you can see his birth home and then they have a beautiful museum there and you can hear excerpts from his sermon. You can go to Ebenezer Baptist Church where he was the pastor and you can kind of listen to his voice play over the loudspeaker and uh, listen to real excerpts from his sermon. It's a very powerful place to go. So I encourage you to go check it out sometime if you're ever in Atlanta. Definitely worth going. And what I think, one of the things that I learned about Dr. Martin Luther King when I was there is that I didn't realize that he had a PhD in philosophy from Boston College. He was an extremely educated man. Another thing I found interesting about him is that in his seminary education, when he started grappling with the idea that all humans were created in the image of God, he, that became kind of his foundation for everything he did in the realm of social justice um, through his efforts in the South to bring integration and to end segregation. And he really was uh, a man who had deep theological reflections. And the work that he did was so rooted and grounded in the principles and ideas that I have been laying out in this series this fall. And so this series would be utterly incomplete if I didn't include something on Dr. Martin Luther King because this is such a pivotal and foundational component to his ideas. And in fact, I'm going to play an excerpt right now from a speech that he gave. And what I think is fascinating about this speech, well, several things, but one of them is he gave it at a high school. And when you listen to the speech, can you imagine... A speech like this about such important ideas being given at a high school today. And he gives this speech in 1968. He gives this wonderful speech. And we're going to just listen to one excerpt of this speech. But as he talks, what I would love for you to do is take some notes and listen 
for image of God concepts that we've been talking about in the class. And just make note of words and phrases that he uses that allude to this image of God concept, okay? So let's watch that clip now. Now, the first thing that we must do is to develop within ourselves a deep sense of somebodiness. Don't let anybody make you feel that you are nobody. Because the minute one feels that way, he is incapable of rising to his full maturity as a person. You know, a lot of people have segregated minds, and one of the first things that the Negro must do is to desegregate his mind. I remember when I was growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, I had to go to high school on the other side of town. At that time, it was the only high school for Negroes in the whole city of Atlanta, the Booker T. Washington High School. When I was a student there, we had 7,000 students in that one school. I guess that's the reason I can't read too well now, because the teacher had to spend all the time getting the class in order and disciplining the class because it was so overcrowded. But anyway, we had to pass by all of these uh, schools, white schools, to get to the Booker Washington High School, and I had to ride the bus from home every morning to the other side of town. And fortunately, I had parents who taught me from the very beginning that I was somebody and that I should never feel inferior, and they taught all of us that, and that we should feel that we are as good as any other children. And I remember day after day getting on that bus. It was a segregated bus. Negroes had to sit in the back. And often uh, we had to stand over empty seats because the seats up at the front were reserved for whites only. And I started getting on that bus going across town. And every time I got on the bus, even though I found myself having to take my body back to the back of the bus, I always left my mind on the front seat. And I said to myself, one of these days, I'm going to put my body up there where my mind is. Now this is all I'm saying this morning, that we must feel that we count, that we belong, that we are persons, that we are children of the living God. And it means that we go down in our soul and find that somebodyness, and we must never again be ashamed of ourselves. We must never be ashamed of our heritage. We must not be ashamed of the color of our skins. Black is as beautiful as any color, and we must believe it.
so every black person in this country must rise up and say, I'm somebody. I have a rich, proud, and noble history, however painful and exploited it has been. I am black, but I am black and beautiful. We must come to see. And so we must be able to cry out with the eloquent poet, fleecy locks and black complexion cannot forfeit nature's claim. Skin may differ, but affection dwells in black and white the same. If I were so tall as to reach the pole or to grasp the ocean at a span, I must be measured by my soul. The mind is the standard of the man. And we must believe this firmly and live by it. So some powerful words there from Dr. King. And hopefully you caught some of those phrases that he said. One of the big ones that I heard uh, that uh, to me alludes to the image of God concept is the very title of the speech that I am somebody. That, that I have the essence of having somebodiness. And that it, I think that what he's speaking to there is that there was a a kind of pervasive mindset in our culture at that time that African-Americans were less than, and he's trying to bring them up to a place of equality. And so he has this phrase of, of having the quality of somebodiness. I think it's a very powerful way of, of restating the image of God concept that we've been talking about in class. And he talks about equality, and he, he talks about how black is just as beautiful as any other color. These are profoundly Christian ideas, as we saw last week in Scripture, that God has made all of us, in all of our diversity as, a, as races, uh, that we all came from that first pair of Adam and Eve. And so there's no one race that is more beautiful than another race, but rather we all ought to possess the quality of having somebodiness. And I think that Martin Luther King just, if I've been listening to a number of his speeches lately while I've been out for my walks, and I've listened to, I don't know, several hours of speeches now, and he interweaves this idea of somebodiness. This is really a core part of his whole campaign. And this isn't really what we hear so much in the news today. But the idea that all humans are created in the image of God really was the foundation of all of that he did for social justice and advocacy. So it's very important to understand the biblical and theological underpinnings of these ideas for Dr. Martin Luther King. Now, we're going to fast forward again. We were in the 1700s, we're in the 1950s, and now we're to today. And I want to introduce you to a new friend that I made a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Anthony. He and his wife are pastors over at Redeemed Life Church in Azusa. I met them through, or I met Pastor Anthony through our friends, uh, Josh and Amber Baker, and they... Um, met at some pastor conferences a few years ago. They've been getting to know each other. And Pastor Anthony was great, and he came over uh, and met with me, and we sat down for a little interview. This is his wife here, 
they're an interracial couple. Uh, she's Latina, he's African American, and they're pastors here at Redeem Life Church. And so Pastor Anthony came and we sat down and we had a little conversation about race issues within the church. And what can we do as Christians to kind of engage in more racial reconciliation? You know, what can we do to be more of a living invitation for people from other races, not just African-Americans, but people from other cultures and other races? What can we do to invite them to our church? Because that's what we are. We are a microcosm of what we will look like in glory, right? And in glory, it's going to be every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So the local church ought to be, in some sense, some microcosm that points people forward to heaven, that we are kind of what my Eastern Orthodox friends would say, we are living icons, we are living pictures of heaven. And so we want our local church, in some sense, to be global too. So what could we do to help uh, invite people from other races and other cultures into our church? So let's watch that interview right now that uh, Pastor Anthony and I had together. We've just been getting to know each other and I'm so honored that he would sit down with me and talk about issues that I think he's really passionate about at his church. Uh, He's running uh, there at Redeem Life Church kind of a multiracial mm-hmm. uh, church and multicultural, very, yeah. very diverse church. And he's just so positioned to help us understand that ministry. And I think that what we're doing in our class, Pastor, is we've been trying to wrestle through the image of God. This is such an important conversation because in the image of God, in this very important teaching in scripture, we all get our dignity, value, and worth. And one of the applications we see of that is in race and we haven't always done that very well nope (laughs) but we're improving yes we are (laughs) and we want to i always say in my class uh i want to be about clarifying what we should be about Mm. you know and that you know maybe we haven't always done it well Mm -hmm. but we can do better yeah and so we've been talking a lot about what scripture has to say so i was wondering if you could just kind of help talk us through some practical ministry applications Mm -hmm. um we hear this term in our culture of racial reconciliation, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe talk to us about your understanding of that and how that plays out in your church and and what you try to do there at your church and how you're planting and building your church. Yeah, well, I first would just applaud you, Krista, for taking this leap into the deep end of the ocean that often no one wants to go, um, especially uh, in our day and age where it's such a hot topic. Um, But when I think of the term racial reconciliation, um, it's an acknowledgement that there has been a wrong um, and that the church can do better. Um, I first will start off by saying, like, I'm no expert. Um, This isn't like, okay, I know all the right answers. I don't know if anyone could ever claim that. Um, But I'm grateful that you're allowing me to kind of swim in these waters with you. Um, I don't by any means say that I represent all black people. Uh, I don't represent all white people. (laughs) So we're on the same page. We're on the same page. Neither of us are experts. We're just a brother and sister trying to talk to each other as human beings. Exactly. Uh, Understanding that there's differences and and we're all working towards um, that. That, that I think that great understanding that as as Christians, yeah, um, our value is in Christ and what the Bible says and what Scripture says. And yeah, I think that's the first thing to say. When I think of racial reconciliation, I think there's an acknowledgement that wrong has been done, um, and there's an understanding that on both sides of of, of the issue, 
Um, there's things that we could do to open doors to, to receive people into our, our, our understanding of God and, and how we can, what it truly means to love thy neighbor um, in very intentional ways. And that's that word intentional, I think, is very important. Um, from a, being a pastor of, of a brand new church plant, I can tell you that we are, I try to be, um, very intentional about the way that we welcome people. And so, um, not trying to, uh, understanding that um, because I'm African American, um, that the way that I see things can be different than the way that people who haven't come from that same kind of ethnic background see things. And just understanding that and sort of trying to create an environment where all are welcome um, in tangible ways. Yeah, because your wife is Latina. Yes. And you said on your church staff, uh, you have other African Americans, but you have a, a white uh, children's pastor. Yep. So you're being obviously, I think, very intentional uh, in how absolutely. you're hiring. And so then you're in wrestling with, you know, what is our basis of our unity in Christ mm -hmm. versus all of our kind of individual cultures that we come from. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure that even plays out in how you preach or even what kinds of examples or jokes you use. Exactly. There's some things that from your culture mm -hmm. at, raised in probably African-American community mm -hmm. that you bring to that, there would be jokes that. I would understand as a white evangelical right. <laughs> that maybe wouldn't be funny to, or they wouldn't get them yeah. in, in your context, but then we're all together. So how do we focus on unity? What unifies us yeah. in Christ? Yeah. I often say we, we, I want to be preaching about what we're for yeah. almost in some senses more so than what we're against. Now I want to be very clear about that. Like um, we preach the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelations. We don't leave anything out. It's not an a la carte menu. You pick and choose what you like. We believe in the entirety of scripture and that it is divine. It's the divine word of God. But that also being said, um, understanding like, as you're saying, like as, as I'm bringing life examples to things, um, I'll, we'll have a staff meeting and we'll debrief a Sunday and, and I have a team that will let me know like, Hey, like, all those jokes you've told a lot of like kind of funny like racial jokes that us that are not black weren't sure can we laugh at those is that would that be considered offensive and 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 trying to make sure that i'm saying things and doing things that are inclusive um and i almost like i approach it like with race as i do with other things so almost to take the sting out of it like if i'm a sports guy and i'm giving a sports analogy i'm probably going to alienate people that don't like sports, like sports. Yeah. and so i kind of see it um, the same way without trying to minimize how important the issue is um, that if I'm just talking about issues for black people Then I am really not leaving a place for white people to feel like they can engage in the conversation um, And so because of our team is intentionally diversified I want to make sure that I'm saying things and giving examples that include us just as Christians But I'm not saying that um, I'm trying to minimize the fact that I'm black and yeah. so I'm impacted by that and yeah. nor would I ask my children's pastor who is white to minimize her experience or uh, my uh, my office manager who is latino to minimize his experience i actually think that when we bring them all to the table and we talk about them openly knowing that we love each other and but more importantly we're unified in christ that any kind of uh, perceived offense that may be picked up i'm like if we can't work it out in the context of a church staff like how difficult is it for those that are listening to not be able to work it out so how about we just kind of talk through it, trip over it, figure it out, knowing at the end there's lots of love and grace. That's so good because I think that our tendency is, because of what we see on the news and mm -hmm. all of the division, 
that we stop looking at each other as individuals. We stop talking to each other as individuals. Mm. We have a tendency of like, well, I want to avoid that group. Yeah. And I'm imagining that's probably on in your group too, that you want to avoid my people. Yeah. And it's like, there's just a bunch of awkward conversations I don't want to be in. So right. I'm just going to do more avoiding yeah. and there's more division. Whereas what you're really inviting us to is, well, maybe we could tolerate some awkward conversations, start looking at each other as individuals mm. and learning how to love each other in that process. Yeah. Oftentimes when I'm engaging into a conversation that I has, I think has the potential to go south quick, um, I will kind of weigh into it with, hey, like, first of all, let's, 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 let's level it, let's, let's kind of understand that there's equity in our relationship. I love you. You love me. We love Christ. We're in this together. So anything I say beyond this point that would make you think otherwise, like, please know that this is my heart. And as I'm trying to understand yeah. X, Y, Z, like um, when when the Black Lives Matter movement was um, really reaching its peak and I had people within my church who would say like, well, don't all lives matter? And and to, to someone who um, is in that movement, um, they might take offense to that. Like, well, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that, but here's the crux of that issue. But um, without getting into, into something like that, what I loved is that they felt the freedom and the safety to say, help me understand this. And I was not going to receive that as like, well, you just don't understand. You can't understand. And what you just said is offensive. That's the whole point of the movement. Like, no, I'm like, no, that was an honest question. Like, all lives do matter. But let me explain where that concept comes from. So why we're, 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 we're taking a moment to highlight that black lives matter because of the injustice that black people are, are yeah. encountering. Um, so I just use that example to say like, yeah, there are plenty of awkward moments, uh, moments for anyone to get offended. But in that time, I'm like, hey... We're the body of Christ. Can we just talk about this and try to come to an understanding of each other? Yeah. Um, and even if at the end there is not like complete unification and an agreement of any particular issue, like I always try to bring it back to the fact of like we are children of God. Yeah. Um, and, and this is not a new issue. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it predates us quite a bit. Yeah. So we're not trying to like solve something that. Um, scholars and very smart people have been trying to solve for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. Crusades have been launched because of it. Yeah. But so to think that in a conversation, we're going to all of a sudden be Eureka. Yeah. We figured something out that nobody else has. is probably unrealistic, yeah. but if it can bring us closer together and also have us have a greater understanding of our identity in Christ, it's a conversation worth having. I think that's so well stated. And I, th- I know that one of the things I've been grappling with and coming into a deeper understanding of is that we as kind of white evangelical culture, and that's not to say all white evangelicals, but just in general, many of us that are in that culture, we're not always aware of what that culture is. We just Mm -hmm. kind of think that we exist and that our reality is reality for everybody else. And we often don't think about ourselves as a culture per se. And, Mm -hmm. and one of the things we've been talking about in class is how we can begin to separate our understanding of who we are as Christians from who we are as Americans. Mm. And that sometimes those two things are in conflict and sometimes they're different, you know, and that God calls us to something deeper um, than just being an American. He calls us to being a Christian first. Yeah. And how do you see that 
role as a, as a Christian, me being a Christian first as a white person, how can I begin to engage with somebody who is maybe an African-American or a Latino or, you know, mm -hmm. in a different group? Like, how do I take that intentional step like you were talking about earlier? And, mm -hmm. You know, what could I do to, to start stepping toward another person? I love what you're doing right now. Like you're you're opening the door for a conversation. Um, um, and I think being a great listener is the greatest start. So when you encounter someone who, who is a person of color, black or Latino or um, or any mixture of race that is feels like they've encountered some injustice, try to understand. Just listen. Just listen. Because um, sometimes I think we can make our own assumptions. Like I've had people say, like to me, like, well, clear, like. Like you don't really encounter racism today. Like, like that's not really a uh, thing. Like, that's it? not really a thing anymore. I mean, like we had a black president, <laughs> right? Aren't we past all that? Exactly. Like okay. that doesn't really happen. And and even a comment like that, I'm like, mm, how about I get what you're trying to say, I, the heart, because I know the person, I know that they love God, I know that they love me. So I almost want to re reframe the question, like instead of saying you don't really be like. Do you encounter a level of racism? Okay. And if you can, can you share with me? Because I want to understand what that's like so that I know how to advocate for the, the opposite side. So it's turning an assumption into a question of curiosity. Exactly. Okay. Because then I can give like practical examples of like, okay, well, this is what it feels like when the last time I got pulled over by a police officer or um, when I remember um, I'm... I'm the youngest of three boys and having someone say, hey, you guys should really not hang out together in public places that often because people think that you're a gang. So you should make sure you, you trickle in people of other races. And I'm like, but we're brothers. <laughs> like, we're just going to the group. Like, so before we do that, we need to bring a, a white person along with us so they don't <laughs> think we're a gang. Um, but like, and so like, does that mean I'm worried about the KKK showing up on my doorstep? No, um, not a concern at all. So have we come up a long way? We absolutely have, but that doesn't mean I don't encounter racism. That doesn't mean, um, like, uh, just 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 two days ago, my we have um, uh, I have a young a young son who's in junior high, um, who had one of these. Um, this is uh, with hope I'm not going too off topic, but we got him one of these switchblade combs because he was doing a 1950s thing, and my wife was like, we probably need to talk to him about like where he pulls that out and like being a man of color, like you can't just. Or whipping that, whipping that out. Like, what if a, a police officer says, hey, what do you have? We want to make sure he's not, like, trying to explain. Like, oh, no, see, officers, it's just like, no, no, son. You just drop it. You just listen. Yeah. Um, but that's because we are very aware of the color of the skin. Yeah. And and those that's a real concern for us. So it, it it's still prevalent. It still happens. It may look different for some people. But even for me, um, from being, uh, like, uh, in, uh, we're not affluent, but we're not impoverished, like realizing that sometimes I have to, when I go down to the hood and I'm talking to some of my brothers that are, that are not in such, um, a quote unquote affluent neighborhoods, realizing that their experience is still very different than mine. Yeah. So there is also a socioeconomic aspect that, and where I, as a, as, as a person of color still need to listen Yeah. and be like, Hey, how do you experience it? So we really need to make an effort to invite people into a conversation mm -hmm. and then listen 
as opposed to just making assumptions like, oh, this isn't an issue anymore. We had a black president. We're, yes. we're way past that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's good. I yeah. like that. So another question I think that a lot of people on my side of the fence are going to wonder about is, if, you know, if we start talking about all of our differences, mm. you know, does that focus on the wrong thing? You know, if I start talking to you about all of your experiences I think a fear that many of us have as, as white evangelicals is your goal is going to be to punish me or to, to uh, shame me. Mm. And that's a fear. And so mm. we feel like I don't even want to have that conversation mm. because I'm afraid that the, the only way out of that conversation is going to be for me to concede that I'm an evil person or that I'm descended from evil people. And that's the, your end goal. Wow. That's what reconcili racial reconciliation really means. Wow. And that is a belief that that mm. many people uh, my age have, that mm. that is the goal. And so I'm just wondering, like, does a conversation about diversity, does that get our, our focus off our unity in Christ and we're just in a bunch of division? You know, mm. how is this, how can we as Christians really foster unity if we're just going to talk about all of our differences? God, so I, like, even just listening to you say that, like, I learned something, like, I would have never thought that. That would be something that that you guys would feel. Oh, it's a deep secret fear, and that breaks my heart because <laughs> that's not the point at all. Um, mm. and, and allowing us to talk about our differences, it honors our heritage. Mm. It acknowledges that a wrong had been done. I know from speaking for myself, it's not with the end goal that you feel bad, you feel shameful, you acknowledge that you your people are evil, and therefore you're evil, and 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 retribution must be paid in in, in some sense. Um, but more of like. Hey, we acknowledge that um, that there has been a wrong done. We want to honor the history that of the struggle um, and and the, and the way that um, your pe my people have overcome yeah. and, and move forward. And 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 in that, um, for me, that that brings unity. It doesn't mm -hmm. bring diversity. It actually unifies us in that understanding. Um, and I i can say like my my hope would be that in that healing process it's not like every time we come together and connect yeah. we're focusing on our differences because we're we have far more similarities than we do differences yeah. um and so the thing that binds us together is our unity in christ and that ultimately that that would be um the direction and the aim we're going to is to become more christ-like i think in order to become more christ-like um and be and to honestly know how to serve others and serve one another I, in order for me to know how to serve you best, I actually got to know like what that would look like from your perspective, yeah. like and how to serve you better. Um, in order to know that, like I have to have an understanding of where you're at, what you're going through, and what the needs are. And so, if you are a white evangelical and you want to reach out to the black evangelical or the black community, like you would have to ask us what we need. Yeah. Um, or else you could be putting a lot of effort into things that you don't really need. I don't really need. That's <laughs> like. Great. I'm glad you think that's awesome, but it's actually, it doesn't help me at all. Okay. And so it has to start with, let's talk about like, how can I serve you and how can I honor where, where you've been and, and where we believe God is leading us to together. But that's, again, just brings me right back to if we, if the only thing we know about each other is what we see on the news and we don't ever sit down and talk to each other as individuals mm -hmm. and really get to know each other. We are not going to make meaningful progress, I don't think, in mm -hmm. racial reconciliation mm -hmm. uh, as Christians or even as just human beings. Yeah. I mean, we've got to get past 
what we see on the news and just sit down with each other and really listen to each other. Yeah, because uh, I also think we run the risk of just continuing to perpetrate the cycle. Yeah. Because we haven't had a real conversation to get us out of that cycle, um, to, to figure out what is the thing that is going to cause change. Yeah. Um, so there has to be a conversation where, where there's just a mutual understanding of, of the other side. Yeah. And- so hopefully that gives you something to think about. We, we had a great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed meeting Pastor Anthony. I really would love to talk to him some more. We could have kept talking for another hour, believe me. We had a great time together. But what I really hope that you get out of that clip is that I hope that you'll understand the importance of having a personal conversation. Because really, when we get all of our information from the media, when, when what we think about other people, other cultures, other races, and what animates our emotions is what we receive through the media. We're only, we're, we're getting such a distorted view. Our glasses are completely distorted and we're allowing our worldview to be shaped more by the media than by Christ. And I, just as Pastor Anthony and I were talking there at the end, to me, that was the most important part of the whole conversation is the importance of a personal relationship and a conversation. We have to be willing to step into a risk with someone else who's maybe culturally or ethnically or racially different than us. We have to be willing to step into that risk and to believe in their humanity, that they too are created in the image of God, just like we are, and that there are certain universal human longings that we all have for dignity, value, and worth. And how can we use that as a starting point for a a discussion to increase our understanding? It doesn't do us any good when all we do is just talk to each other. We've got to start stepping into some risks of personal conversation with people who are different than us, personal relationships. And that we as Christians, quite honestly, ought to be even more, ought to be the most motivated people on the face of the earth to do that because of the unity that we have in Christ, that that is what brings us together. So let's talk for a minute about the curse and redemption. We live like the curse when we speak negatively about others who are different than us. Have you ever thought about this? I think that this is a big problem among Christians and in our culture more broadly. And I think that this is an area where we as Christians need to start acting as agents of transformation. Um, We need to repent and to meditate deeply on these verses in James chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark, The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. 
It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. And out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring. Can, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt spring produce fresh water. This is a powerful passage that Christians, I think, we need to meditate more deeply on. Because our words betray us. The words that we say when the doors are closed in the quiet of our homes reveals the state of our heart. And when we pronounce what I call verbal curses over one another, when we say things about each other that are more based on what we hear on the news than on a personal relationship with other people, we are doing exactly what the Apostle James is talking about. We are creating a fire. We are not, we are speaking curses over people who have been made in the likeness of God. Do you notice how the wording there takes us right back to Genesis 1? It even has, lists the animals here, the all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea. That's straight out of Genesis 1. And it says that we praise the Lord with our tongue, but then we use it to curse men who are made in his likeness and in his image. James takes us right back to the beginning, which has been the focus of this whole discussion this fall. When we speak verbal curses, when we say negative words over people who are different than us, we are violating them in their image. We are violating their dignity. And the great way to overcome that is through relationship. So we are acting like the curse. We are living like the curse. We are speaking like the curse when we allow negative things to flow out of our mouth and unkind words. But we act like redeemed people when we see the local church as a multicultural, multiracial, multilingual preview of heaven. Because that's really what we ideally ought to be. We shouldn't be about being Americans first. We should be about being a picture of heaven first, where every tribe, every nation, every tongue is welcomed. So the big question here is, what can we do to act more intentionally, to invite others who are different than our culture or our race into the church? How can we invite those people into our lives and into our oikos? What do we need to actively do? As Pastor Anthony said, what do we need to be intentional about in order to invite those people into our lives? We act like redeemed people when we accept things like interracial marriage. Pastor Anthony, again, and his wife, they're an example of an interracial couple. But in Christ, that doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. It's because these people have the ground of their unity in Jesus Christ, in their salvation. That is their identity. And so the main thing is their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, as God's redeemed people, 
should not have problems with interracial or even intercultural marriage. There might be some challenges there that are unique to that situation, but every marriage has, every marriage has challenges to overcome. But when we have our unity in Christ, that forms a stronger bond than anything in the physical. We act like redeemed people when we repent of judging people according to their political affiliation or their race. When we are more about, you know, what, what political party do you belong to? And that's what makes you acceptable to me or not acceptable or your culture or your race or your ethnicity. We need to, we are judging incorrectly. We've talked many times in this class about what it means to judge and to judge incorrectly is to judge from outside appearances and to not judge the heart. We want to judge people's hearts, not their outside appearances. Their outside appearances are not relevant to the Lord. Their sex is not relevant to the Lord. Their gender, their, their race, their culture is not relevant. What's relevant is the unity that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to treat people as individuals, not as groups, okay? So we want to, again, enter into that relationship with other people. We want to ask people about their experience. If you have somebody in your oikos who's from a different culture or a different race, ask them about their experience. Ask them about maybe some painful incidents in their life that have happened to them as a result of their culture or their race. Maybe someone's made fun of their accent or what challenges they've had in their lives as a result of their ethnicity. Ask them about it. Be a friend. Be kind. Listen. That's what we want to be doing in our oikos, right? What happened? What was that like for you? How did you feel? Those can be some questions that you can, you can ask them and then listen. We're just listening to each other's stories just as we do in class. Doesn't that what helps build empathy in our hearts toward us and toward each other? But when all we do is think about people the way that we see them on the news, we're not seeing them as individuals. We're thinking about them in groups, not as individuals. Rather, we want to build the love of Christ in our hearts toward that person and toward the journey that they've been on, just like the journey we've been on. We've all faced difficulties in our lives. And that's part of the human experience. That is the ground of what's common and universal to all of us. We act like redeemed people when we invite God to reveal our prejudices. This is a very courageous prayer. Start asking the Lord, do I harbor bad feelings for members of a particular ethnic group or a particular race or a particular culture? Do I have prejudices in my heart, Lord? Do I make external judgments about people based on their appearance, their accent, or their status? Do I do that? Lord, show me in my heart. Show me in my soul. Show me in my emotions where I have come into agreement with lies about other people who have been created in your image. Have you ever thought about the fact that any thought that we have that is not in agreement with the father's thought about someone else is a lie. It's a sin. We want to have the father's eyes for everyone that we meet. 
And we're not perfect at that. But when I find myself struggling, when I find myself in a very negative space about somebody, that's the time I need to start asking the Father, Father, give me your eyes for this person. Help me to see this person through your kingdom destiny so that my heart and my empathy can be stirred toward them and I can begin to talk to them and see them as a human person just like me. Finally, if you want to dig deeper into these topics, I want to recommend, um, I would love to call him a friend. Maybe I'll be seeing him this week while I'm at ETS. I've seen him the last couple times I've been there. Dr. Craig Keener, he probably wouldn't know me. We are friends on Facebook, but he's a wonderful New Testament scholar. Uh, I would say he's arguably the, the most preeminent New Testament scholar right now. And um, he uh, has a beautiful testimony of a time in his life when his wife had left him. His wife abandoned, his first wife abandoned his mar- their marriage. And he couldn't find um, comfort in his local church. And he ended up um, starting to go to a black church. And the people in that church ministered to his heart. And he captured... Um, he's got some great videos on his personal webpage and on his blog about his experience within the African-American community and how they ministered healing to his broken heart during a time in his life when he really needed help. He's married to a beautiful African lady now, and uh, she's an African immigrant, and they have uh, two children. He's a wonderful scholar. I love his heart. He's so humble. But I would recommend the writings and and videos from Dr. Craig Keener on themes related to racial reconciliation. He just has some very beautiful things to say, born out of his unique experience as a white man um, entering into the African-American culture as an outsider. And I have found many of his insights to be the foundation for this lesson. And um, I've really found great value in his work. So I would commend him to you for, for more thoughts and reflections along these lines. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next week.